I'm really glad to be back. I missed you guys a ton, um, though I am a little disappointed. Not many of you have pointed out my tan or said anything about it, so I'm looking forward to hearing more after my teaching, just about just the things you've seen and missed. Um, we are going to pick back up in the book of Matthew this evening, continuing on in our story. And the good news is this week will be a bit more PG and a lot more wholesome. Now, in case you missed it last week, Josh Porter was here and he taught about the tragic death of John the Baptist, the faithful prophet, cousin, and friend of Jesus. And uh, no doubt, John's death painted for us this really clear picture of the world in which Jesus found himself in, a place where the kingdom of God was at odds with both the political government and its leaders. And hopefully you'll remember that John's rejection and ultimate death by the hands of the state was more than just an isolated event. It would also serve as a foreshadowing for Jesus' own death. And it would reveal to us, the readers, both the realities and the costs of truly following Jesus, of life in the kingdom of God. All of which sets the stage for tonight's teaching. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 14. Now, while you're turning there so quickly, because you're very big Bible scholars, I remember, um, allow me to offer you just a quick reminder about what we're getting into Remember that what we're reading is a biography. It's a recording of something that actually happened, and it's something that's being passed on to us. Matthew is our author, and he's written in such a way that his readers would find themselves actually in the story of Jesus and be made to ask again and again, what do I think about this man and his claims to be king? Now, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus doing all these really cool things. He's teaching, he's healing, he's casting out demons, he's working with the poor and the marginalized, all very sexy and really um, beautiful and vibrant expressions of Jesus' ministry. But where we are tonight is actually like a left-hand turn. What we're reading now is what scholars call the collection of the rejection narratives. So we read about Jesus earlier on being rejected by his hometown, and his rejection came because of rationalism. The people around him were going like, this cannot be the Messiah. This is Mary and Joseph's son. He's a stonemason. He's blah, like super whatever. It doesn't look like I think he's supposed to look, so on and so forth. And then last week we read about this guy, John the Baptist, who was reject, rejected and thrown into prison by the political powers and lecherous leaders. And all of it was based on sensualism. It's kind of what the epitome of it all was. And today we're going to continue into that narrative as we find Jesus' own disciples disrupting things, compelled by perhaps the most understandable and relatable of defects, which is realism. With that, look with me at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Our story tonight opens with Jesus just learning of John's death. And in a few verses prior to this one, we see that John's disciples had come for his body and they had buried him. And then after that, they go and they tell Jesus what had happened. And as Jesus hears about John's death, we read that he gets into a boat and he withdraws to the solitary place. And with good reason, he goes to a place where he could be alone, something we've seen Jesus do over and over again. This word solitary here can be translated wilderness or deserted place or even lonely place. 
And it's here that we see another part of Jesus' humanity revealed. Remember, Jesus is the greatest example of true spirit-filled humanity. So he's not just being moody and depressed and sulking around. He actually knows in his humanity that being alone right now is a good thing. And there's no doubt that he was grieving. He had just lost John. This was his friend, his partner. This was family. And not only did he lose him, but he lost him in a manner in which must have revealed to Jesus, even if only in a small way, what lay ahead of him too. Needless to say, there was a lot to process and to consider. And this time alone was Jesus' moment to just breathe, to think, to pray. You know what it's like when you get hit with deep grief? It's like, how do you even find your footing? You just need a moment to be alone and to gather yourself. This is where Jesus was at. Unfortunately, though, for him, we read this time was short-lived. If you look at the second part of verse 13, we read that the crowds were uh, following him. They were unaware of Jesus' pain and his grief, and they actually moved from the town to the deserted place. So the imagery here is this. Jesus gets in a boat to try to go to the place to be alone. He's going by water. The little crowd, and by little I mean a bajillion, squillion people, are actually going by foot from their town all the way to where Jesus is. I don't know why. I think that's such a funny image, but it, like they're on foot and he's like on the boat. And there should be some weird music behind it or something like, doot, doot, you know, I don't know. No? Okay. Uh, so they come. They're coming. Here he is in his time of need. They don't know what's necessarily going on. And uh, they come, and they don't just come because they're just like, hey, let's hang out. They're actually coming with needs. And we read that as soon as Jesus lands on the shore, meaning he didn't even make it to the shore, he actually sees them. He didn't get his time alone. He had time on the boat. That's all we know. But once he gets to the shore, he sees them. And his reaction, in my opinion, is nothing short of remarkable. He isn't angry. He isn't frustrated or avoidant, which is entirely what I would be. Instead, we read that he is full, full of compassion. N.T. Wright describes the moment this way. He says, before the outward invisible works of power and healing the sick comes the inward and invisible work of power in which Jesus transforms his own feelings into love for those in need. Jesus' own vulnerability seems to be a gateway for his compassion. So, Jesus, moved with compassion, does what he's done time and time again. He heals their sick. And in the middle of his own time of need, we find him spending time amongst those in need. This is a radical man and rabbi for sure. Now, eventually, the day wears on, and we find the disciples trying to wrap things up. Look down with me at verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him. They said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, there seems to be a hint of impatience and maybe even fatigue in the disciples' tone. They're essentially telling Jesus what to do here. And they don't preface it with their usual title, Lord, this is what we think you should do, whatever. It's pretty frank and it's pretty direct. And it, in short, they're basically saying, look, we've been at this for a while. There's too many people here and they won't go home and eat if you don't tell them to. Now, historically, we know that it isn't likely that so large a number of people would have the ability to buy enough food in the villages that would have been close to this deserted or wilderness place to actually meet their needs. The people would have had to bring their own provisions. So 
the disciples aren't all wrong here. They're, they're taking in their circumstances, and they're taking it at face value, and they're going, this isn't going to work. What else can they do? Well, apparently, something. Jesus responds without losing his sense of reality, and he says, no, they don't need to go. You give them some food. Our disciples now, undoubtedly and understandably, probably a little baffled, respond and say, verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. One scholar I read noted a hint of sarcasm in their answer, and while I don't know if that's true or not, they're basically showing Jesus what they've got, and they're basically saying, this is it. This is all we have. We're going to feed all these people with this little measly meal. And you can almost hear their protest. There aren't any questions of like, so how do you think we should do that? Or like, do you have something up your sleeve? Or what are you thinking about? There's nothing. There's, there's no conversation to be had. And maybe they were just perplexed. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But, but there was nothing except what they had and their ability to look at that and go, this isn't sufficient. Jesus placed a demand upon them that they are clearly incapable of fulfilling. And despite all that they had seen him do time and time again, they are fixated on their own perspective and limitations. And I've wondered all week, like maybe it was the simplicity of this miracle. You know, if it was like a, a person who had leprosy or someone who was totally dead or something, they'd be more like, yeah, he might do something. But because it was dinner, they were more like, oh, no. You know, like maybe I didn't even think about what he might do. And of course, we can't say for sure, but despite their unbelief and exasperation, Jesus, in perfect kindness, responds to them, and he says, verse 18, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave to the disciples, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Now, uh, notice that the disciples here weren't called to creatively dream up or conjure up some kind of strategic plan for charitable action. That's not what they were after here. They were simply asked to give what they had, to surrender their meager provision and let him do the rest. And while it may seem that they do this with little faith, the reality is they still do it even at a cost to themselves. Scholar R.T. France beautifully describes what their giving really entails when he says to surrender even this meager provision to Jesus was either an act of reckless obedience or evidence of a more confident faith in Jesus' problem-solving ability than we have seen the disciples displaying elsewhere. Still, for sure, uncertain, and perhaps even clueless to the outcome, the disciples hand over their food and with it a possible forfeit of what they have to benefit someone else. Now next we read that Jesus directs the people to sit down and he essentially prepares them to eat. It's like your mom ringing the dinner bell like all your moms do. Uh, And here it's interesting because in the Greek, direct is understood as a command and sit is actually to lounge or to lay. This is a position the first century Jews would have taken when they were at a meal or a banquet or a feast. So he's inviting them. He's setting up his picture. He's saying, prepare to eat because you're about to feast, which is odd because, again, the disciples must be thinking, oh, sweetie, okay, (laughs) that's okay, good. Yes, so the picture we see here is both prophetic and familiar with both authority and this beautiful hospitality on display. Jesus sets the stage for the miracle. Jesus then takes the bread and the fish, and he gives thanks, and he breaks them. And in other words, he blesses it, 
and breaks it in order to be shared. This is language we'll hear again in this book, but around a different meal. And after he does this, he gave the food to the disciples, and the disciples gave the food to the people. And in this act, we see Jesus subtly yet sweetly inviting them to not only participate, but to share in the miracle itself. And through that, something incredible happens. Look down at verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides the women and children. So just like that, boom, we've got our miracle. Now, no thunder, no lightning, no singing angels. But I would argue that everyone eating is a pretty awesome miracle. You know what I mean? I just got back from the South, and we like to eat. That's a very special thing. You guys like to eat, too. I think you do. Um, Okay, anyway, so I like to eat, and that was a miracle. Now, look, everyone eats. And that's a good thing. Everyone eats, that's like a good motto. If I'm somewhere, that's what I'm hoping for. Do you know what I mean? Like we're all eating something. In fact, what's happening? In fact, (laughs) we read that 5,000 people ate, and listen to this, they were satisfied. So it wasn't just sufficient or enough to curb their appetite. What we read is that this was a filling to the brim experience. The imagery for satisfied here is that of a fattened calf which is attractive, I know, but at least you're getting the picture. This is the kind of way in which Jesus was providing for the people. His provision went beyond any normal comprehension or even faith-filled expectation. We even read that the disciples picked up leftovers of broken pieces of food, language that's supposed to point us back to the initial meal and the depth and the breadth of this miracle. And we read that there were 12 baskets left over, painting for us, a picture not only of the provision, but of the grandiosity of the miracle itself. Now, one more thing to note here. You'll notice at the end of our text, Matthew, who is at least partly a product of his patriarchal society, does not bother counting the women or the children. And as a woman, I'm not loving that. I don't, it's not my favorite thing. So I'm like, come on, Maddie, let's do something different. (laughs) But I want to, yeah, I hear your snaps. Here's some snapping, ladies. Interesting. Now, I want us to look at it this way. God allowed the influence of Matthew's culture to come through in his writing. God doesn't censor his human author in that sense. But notice, just because Matthew is influenced by a culture that devalues women and children, that certainly doesn't mean Jesus devalues them. Because Jesus provided food for them, for both the women and the children that Matthew didn't count. In other words, Jesus counted them. Stanley Hauerwas says it like this. That women and children are not counted may indicate they had less status than men, but such is not the case in the new Israel constituted by Jesus' body and blood. Jesus does not count those he feeds. He does something far more important. He feeds them. And look, this is a powerful statement about who Jesus is and what he did. Now, I have to confess to you, it is easy for me to read this story, and it might be for you too, I don't know what your experience with church is or the story is, but it's easy for me to think back to a time that I saw this story slapped up onto a flannel board or displayed through some cartoon vegetables, do you know what I'm talking about? It's like those kind of experiences. And in that that framework, that the way of thinking, like I've heard this before, this is, eh. It's easy for me to minimize what's happening here. And even to assume that I understand what both Jesus and Matthew are after. Theologian Dale Bruner once said, the Christian faith is nothing if not a supernaturalism. 
And while I get the sentiment, this story doesn't exactly fall into the list of miracles I recall when I'm trying to, like, conjure up faith. I'm not, like, feeding of the 5,000, go. You know, like, um, the truth is, though, that wouldn't have been the case for Matthew's audience. We think that Matthew's audience was built primarily of Jewish readership, meaning that as they read the story, their minds would be carried back to the stories of the Old Testament. Stories like that of Elisha, this famous prophet in Israel who was given 20 loaves of bread and fed 100 men with it, and guess what? Had some food left over. Or a more obvious example of Moses, under whose leadership hundreds of thousands of Israelites received miraculous provision of manna from heaven regularly for years, all of that taking place in the wilderness, leaving his readers to consider one pointing and provocative conclusion, that this man, Jesus, here in the wilderness feeding the masses was more than just a famous Jewish rabbi. He was, in fact, the new Moses, the greater Moses. And unlike Moses, he wasn't just a spokesperson for God. He performed the miracle himself. He provided bread for Israel, but not for ordinary sustenance alone. Matthew's readers would have understood that this story was imbuing with layers of meaning and foreshadowing. Foreshadowing like when Jesus looked up to heaven and he gives thanks and he breaks the loaves. He wasn't just practicing some Jewish ritual. He was pointing to the moment when we arrive at the Lord's Supper and we see the way Jesus truly provides for the world in the breaking of his own body and in the way that he truly gives himself to his disciples. As one author put it, the miraculous feeding of the multitude was a short-term solution. The upside-down alternative for Jesus was to offer himself as the permanent bread of life. His miracles not separated from the work he had been sent to do. And this miracle was unique. Notice that there's no mention of the crowd's reaction or response to the, to the miracle. 5,000 plus, which we're talking like 15,000 people actually. And there's no mention of like a thank you or that fish was cooked perfectly, thank you so much or whatever. Not a mention, not a thing, not a nod, nothing. There's nothing in here. And you've got to imagine, like, think about the crowds actually spread out. I mean, if you've ever been in a, a group of 5,000, group is not the right word, but whatever, a mass of 5,000 people, that's a lot. But then you add another five and another five and another five. If you were in row 4,739, you don't care where the food came from. You're just like, pass it back, sweetie, and also the drinks. Let's keep them coming. You know what I mean? It's like, thank you, more bread, moss bread for all of us, moss pond, let's go. Right? Some of you, no bread because you're gluten-free or whatever. Okay, it's fine. Not this girl. Happy to eat your bread. I'd have been like, I'll take hers. Thank you so much. And I, I wondered at that all week, but I, it actually revealed something really poignant to me. I believe we don't get any of that because the miracle wasn't for the people. Not at least in the way it was for the disciples for those who knew him best, for those who walked and sat closest to him, who with their own hands actually administered the miracle. The miracle was for them. And it was an invitation for them to not only see but experience Jesus as both man and God, to find within him both the ordinary and the extraordinary, and to see him as the rabbi and teacher, yes, absolutely, but also as their friend and shepherd. 
A disciple is never without needs themselves. Before I left for sabbatical, people kept saying things like, you can't give away what you haven't received or you can't pour out what you don't have, all of which I just took as an insult as though they're like, you are dried up, sweetie. Go on sabbatical. We'll see you when you get back. <laughs> Today, I mean, that's how it kind of felt, so I was kind of pissed, but that was before sabbatical, and now I have had a change of heart. And the truth is, it was true. It's not like it's not true, but they were wrong and there needs to be repentance, but that's for the elders to deal with. Because being a disciple can often feel paradoxical, meaning it can feel contradictory. I don't know if you've experienced that, but it's a real thing. It's this strange dance between our flesh and our humanity and our spirit. It's the place where we both be and do, where we receive and we give, where we love and we lead, where we need and are filled. And it's here in our text that we see the beauty of this paradox so clearly. From the beginning, we know that the disciples were with Jesus, that they would have known better than the crowd the depth of his sorrow and his need for solitude. Jesus' humanity was completely on display before them, and yet they see their rabbi full of love and compassion, in need of healing himself, begin to heal others. Henry Nouwen once said that love often makes itself visible in pain. And it's here in the depth of Jesus' pain that we see his love most perfectly on display. Jesus was not just revealing who he would be to the crowds. He was revealing who he would be to his disciples. Jesus' pain was a greenhouse, uh, for lack of a better word, for his authentic affection and participation in what God was doing. And what he displayed in this moment was an invitation to the disciples to do the same. And the crazy thing, honestly, this is so crazy. It blew my mind all week when I was thinking about it. The crazy thing about it all is that he wasn't asking his disciples, which he totally could have. He was not asking them to do anything he wasn't already doing himself. Completely empty. Completely without the thing he thought he needed. And yet he moves in faith, trusting that the provision would be there. His humanity fully alive with grief, loss, and pain. And yet, from that place, he shows them not, that he shows him that it was not his limitation, but it would actually become the vehicle through which the miracle would come. This is the way of Jesus. This is what his humanity revealed. And still, the disciples struggled. Dummies, right? I mean, it's like, what are y'all doing? That's a joke, because we're dumb. Anyway. I don't know. Is that? I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. (laughs) Look, the disciples had in their hands the meal that they had prepared for and planned for. Anyone type A in the room? Yeah, you're justice-driven people when it comes to mealtime. No, I prepped this. This ain't for sharing. Yeah? Y'all are like that. That's what is hap- a little bit of what's happening here. We planned, we prepared, we were ready, and now you're asking us to share. It just isn't, in- it just isn't enough for everyone. We can't do it. It doesn't work. I brought my own snacks. No thanks. You forgot yours. Too bad. <laughs> I've never done that, but I hear people do that. And it's terrible. <laughs> the disciples' focus was what, on what they did not have, and what they didn't have declared the end of their story to them. And so often that's true for us. Look, they were just being realistic, right? Practical. They didn't have enough. They're looking at what they have. They're going, this is impossible. They're baffled, maybe a little helpless, and even maybe even a little reluctant to hand over what they had because they knew it wouldn't work. And still Jesus says to them, you give them some food. 
an annoying command. And yet with one sentence, he was disrupting their sight, their ability to see their poverty as a limitation instead of a resource. In that moment, Jesus invites them to imagine a different outcome, to see as he is seeing, to give up their prideful assumption that they are their own creators or that they are their own resource, and to believe that their gesture of generosity born from poverty could become something incredible. There was an invitation being extended to them. Dale Bruner says this. Dale Bruner says this. The church learns from this story. Bring them here to me means to give Jesus everything we have in practical obedience, however insignificant that everything may seem to be. Doing what we can with what we have is a wonderfully flexible instrument. Under Jesus' blessing, it can bring help of the most creative kind. Jesus often asks us for the unreasonable, for the small thing that doesn't make any sense, those subtle, weird little nudges and invitations to things. You're like, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if I serve with the kids. It really doesn't matter that I show up every week. It doesn't really matter that I tell the whole truth. It doesn't really matter. He's asking for the unreasonable thing, the thing that you've deemed unreasonable and unnecessary. And if you're anything like me, you'll probably protest. I love telling him crap like I can't do it, sweetie. Thank you, though, for asking. Right? I don't have the time. I don't have the energy or the ability. All I have is this. This is it. And I, what are you going to do with this? And again, you, you may even, if you're like me, discount every reason why it won't be sufficient. Or, or you calculate why it won't work. You guys know I love to tell God what to do. It's one of my favorite things. And often in this space, I like to tell him what he's doing wrong. I like to tell him how the formula doesn't actually add up. That if he asks me to do this thing, what's going to be brought about is not what he thinks will happen. Trust me, I know. (laughs) But the reality is, for the disciple of Jesus, for those of us who are following after them, he will never stop asking. He will never stop asking for the unreasonable thing, the thing that you disqualify. Because look, in his whole person, he declares, just by his very being, that he knows something we don't. All throughout the scriptures, we see this thing called the principle of multiplication, where in the kingdom of God, a small thing can actually become huge, where out of nothing, something is formed, where in barren wombs, babies are given a home, where dead things actually come back to life. It's not a mystical fantasy that dead things are actually raised to life, a place where a small sacrifice becomes the birthplace for a miracle where what we have is handed over and offered up in faith and its only hope is a miracle. This is the invitation for the disciple of Jesus. Life as a disciple and in the kingdom of God will demand a relief, a belief in this reality. Jesus gives his disciples a responsibility. He says to them and to us, you give them something, which will require us to look down at our hands And look at the smallness of what we have and then look to him for our provision. And and with his next breath, hear him say to us, bring it here to me. See, we aren't responsible for the miracle. We are responsible for the surrender. In this story, it's crazy to me, but we don't know that the miracle has actually happened until we find it in the hands of the disciples. 
Jesus took what they had, and now the miracle becomes theirs. That's the crazy thing about this story. And somehow, I'm sure it's not what they had in mind, and yet I'm sure it's what they would have hoped for. It was a greater and different and more mysterious outcome. And again, somehow it was theirs. God delights in shattering our pint-sized expectations of who he is and what he's going to accomplish in our lives. He delights in doing it. Because he is a God who is able to give beyond what our expectations are, to give beyond what we can conceive, beyond what our responsibilities outline. He is lavish and he is outrageous. He is eager to give you more than you thought possible. Now, some of you are going, bullcrap. No, he's not. Trust me, he's not. Because that didn't happen the way I thought it would. Or whatever, whatever your negotiation. I mean, I got 100 million. You can borrow any of mine. But when I come to a text like this, I am reminded over and over again that his ways are not my ways. His declaration of miracle and outcome is so much greater than mine. And it is the call of the disciple to believe him to be better than we imagine him to be. It is our call to believe, to believe in his character and his nature, that even though our circumstances don't look like we imagined them to, that he is working for our good, that he can withhold nothing good from us. The outcome is not defined by you. It is defined by God himself. And when you see him face to face, one day you will know the reality and the glory of his goodness. And today we hold fast to the faith that he is good and faithful, and who he says he will be. If only we will give him what we have. If only we will trust him for the invitation that he's extending. You're like, this is so Bobo. He's asking me to volunteer. Sweetie, I don't know what that means, but you need to obey the Lord. I mean, I'm serious. It's a heart attack. You need to obey him because you don't know what lies behind the obedience. And it's not for you to know. We don't respond to him because it's our duty to do it and because we feel like it's annoying that he's nagging us. We do it because we love him, because we're coming after him, because he's worthy of everything that we have, everything within us. He's worthy of the sacrifice of our lives. And we got to get off this idea that somehow I'm entitled to what he has, that his kingdom is mine in the sense that it should look how I think it should. He has so much more for us, so much more. If only we'll just surrender. Good grief, we're dumb. I mean, really. The sheep analogy is crazy and true. It's mostly you guys, not me as much, but yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, you know this. I, I was on sabbatical for 10 weeks, and I highly recommend that. I, uh, I think it's good <laughs> for everyone. I think you should do it if you have a life. I think you should do it. Uh, Seriously, I think it was one of the best gifts I had ever been given in my adult life, and I have been given some really, really bananas gifts. Like, seriously, like, you'd be like, what? What? You'd be like that, and it is better. Uh, But I have to confess, it didn't start well. I mean, um, you know, they tell you, they told me at the beginning, they were like, listen, Bethany, this is not going to go well the first two weeks. And I was like, oh yeah, for you it probably didn't. That's okay. Some of us are just more mature in the faith. I don't know. You know, it's like, anyway, so that was pride coming before the fall. That, uh, and then I fell. And the first two weeks were horrid. They were awful. You could call my mother right now on speaker. I could put her on speaker and she'd be like, you, I can't even tell you because you'd fire her from being your pastor. It, honestly, I feel, I've been apologizing for weeks. I'm like, I'm really, remember when we were, and she's like, don't speak about it. You know what I mean? It's like, 
no. And about halfway through sabbatical, I was reflecting on the difficulty of those few weeks, reluctantly, but I was. And I realized that it wasn't just the jet lag or the fatigue of my life or the fear of leaving my life for 10 weeks uh, that made me cranky, which is a nice word for it. Uh, um, I realized that part of my struggle came from the posture of which I entered into sabbatical. Um, I went into sabbatical ready for sure, but I went in a little bit like this. You know, like when you're about to go on those scary um, water slides that give you the wedgies? Anybody? I don't do those. Anyway, I worked at a water park. That's a whole other story. I don't do those for a lot of reasons, sanitary being one of them. Anyway, uh, it was like that. Nobody's, I guess you've never been on like a, no one's been on a water slide where you're like this and you hope you don't die. Oh, you have. Oh, good. You weren't talking, so I didn't know. I couldn't hear anything. Okay, so it was like that. That's kind of the image, and I want you to have it because it was like my, my fists were clenched, and I was holding in my arms. You just have to imagine. I was holding all the things that made me me or that I thought made me me, you know, and the things that made me who I am as a woman and as a pastor and as a leader, all these things. I'm like, these are really good things, and I better hold on to them because these are really important. I'm going to need them when I get back from sabbatical, because this is how I know how to function in the world, and this is how I know how to get my identity. And look, I'm old. You know what I mean? I've got my identity figured out. I'm not like, I don't know who I am. I'm like, I got an idea of what's going on here under the hood. But it was still a struggle. Do you know what I mean? I was like, okay. So there I am holding on. And no joke, I was like Gollum. Like it was Gollum level. Does anyone, Lord of the Rings? Are you Christians? You should watch the movie. I'm serious. Okay? It's your assignment. You're like, is it from 2009, though? And I'm like, yeah, you were four, and I was six. Uh, But it was like that. My mom would be like, hey, like, let's talk about maybe this thing. And I'd be like, ah! (laughs) That was like my precious, my like, you know, and it was. Like at night, I'd be like, oh, like, you were so special. You're such a sweetie. Like, weird. And I know that's weird imagery, but it's actually how I live my life. So for the first two weeks, I'm like my preciousing everything, you know, I'm like, this is who I am and it's so sacred and like, it's such a cool identity and God's, I hope I didn't talk like that, but I, it, that's how it felt. And every night I'd go to bed and it's like, I'd be holding these things like just tight to my chest and feeling pain, but just like, oh, this is normal. This is what they told me would happen. Uh, I don't know why it's hurting. And Jesus would be in the room like he always is. And he would be patient looking at me. And, and then he'd kindly invite me. Uh, he'd just say, do you want me to hold those things? And I quickly would say, absolutely not. When you hold things, you make a mess. You're kind of sloppy. <laughs> so no, thank you. No, really, that was kind of a conversation. And I was like, oh, but you have done so much already. Thank you <laughs> so much, like in a big way. I appreciate it. Uh, and, and honestly, every night I'd be like, but these are the things that make me happy and whole and fulfilled. These are the things that are really important. You know that, so I'll hold them. You relax, whatever. And after a few weeks, I finally mellowed out enough to hear him one night say to me, what are you afraid of? And of course, I told him, like, look, I won't have much if you take this. I do not know what's going to happen. If you take this thing, this is really important, um, this could go really badly. And so then I just thought I'd elaborate, and I told him all the reasons it was a bad idea that he should try to take these things from me. So we fought another night. And then uh, finally, we got to some sort of conclusion. But just in case you didn't know, sabbatical is supposed to be a time of reflection and healing and transformation. And I thought that I could do that. 
Um, I thought I could do it while I was holding on to all those things um, that I wanted, you know? I was like, Jesus, just throw the gold, diamonds, and whatever on top of my pile, and we'll call it good. We'll call it like a really good sabbatical. And um, if you had talked to me right before sabbatical, you would have heard me say a lot, I just want God to do a miracle in me. In fact, before sabbatical, I asked the Lord for two miracles. I was like, these are miracles that will have to happen deep within who I am, that no, this is a place nobody touches but you. This is a place that's sacred. And if you are who I think you are, then I'm going to ask that you do this really radical thing in me. So I was ready. I was geared up. I was totally up for it. I was like, a miracle? Yes. Tear down all that I am? Yes. Rebuild who I am? Yes. Whatever you have for me, I want it. I want to see you do this crazy thing. But the truth is, I didn't want it to cost me anything. It turns out that miracles are, uh, they actually require impossibility to be miracles. And I was just seeing if we could do a makeshift version of it. Can I still hold on to the thing and you do your thing and I get all the things? And that feels like a good formula. So one night in a small, very unconditioned uh, apartment in Paris, laying next to my mother who was dead asleep, me, tears burning down my face, me looking at her going like, is she going to wake up? You know, like, she, no, not moving. This one's, trust me, she's out. And I thought, this is something to talk to my therapist about. Um, but I was laying there, very unconditioned. By the way, it's the hottest Europe has ever been, so I thought I'd spend my summer there throwing up on the side of the streets of Paris and Rome, which was nice. You don't have to feel compassion. I survived it. I get heat stroke a lot because I'm tan. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, I'm laying there, Paris, it's hot, birds are crashing into our window, it's interesting. And, um, and I heard him invite me again. And he just said, do you want me to hold that? You know, and um, man, not knowing the outcome at all. You know, maybe you think pastors get like prophetic senses about things. No, it was just like snooze fest, she's snoring, I'm here and nothing. It was just this invitation to surrender and to trust. And there was certainly um, not a promise of an outcome. He didn't say, like, I guarantee we're going to do a massive healing, sweetie. So just hang on. It's going to be wild. Um, he, he just invited me to give what I had. And I realized that, listen, on sabbatical, it's just a good recentering. I already know this, but the, the very essence of my life, of who I am, has nothing to do with anything you see. I mean, it obviously has something to do with what you see up here, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, but Jesus is like my, my whole life. And he is. And he has been for as long as I can remember. And I am his disciple. That's the truest thing about me. That's the, the last thing and the first thing and the, hopefully one of the best things. And some days probably the worst thing. <laughs> but, but that's who I am. And on sabbatical, all of that just came back into alignment. And what it meant in that moment to be a disciple of Jesus meant that I had to do the same thing the disciples had to do. That again, just as I came to him for salvation, I came to him in that moment with what I had, with what I thought was really important and on the flip side, by the way, it could be really insignificant. And he took it from me. And, um, and he did the miracle, which is really exciting. Now, no, wait, don't get excited because you're going to be really disappointed. Because the miracle doesn't look anything like I hoped it would. So that's a bummer. Uh, and I told him that. And we've talked about it, and I said, let's do a remake. Let's do something else. Let's go back to Paris together and see what we can do. You know, because I thought miracle was like wake up the next day, head down to a local cafe, meet my husband, who speaks French and English, and, uh, and we just, we go and we stroll the streets of Paris at sunset, yes? I mean, is that so hard, God? Ugh, right? I'm on sabbatical, perfect timing to get engaged. Thank you. Uh, but it didn't happen. 
In fact, I threw up the next day. You know what I mean? Like, that's what's going on. My mom's like, you're good. I'm like, McDonald's. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Oh. Um, but here's the point. Here's the point. He did it. So I am a week. I'm, this is my first week back. Last two weeks ago, I was in Florida on the beach like you are every morning when you're on sabbatical in Florida. And uh, it's a great state. Uh, it's great. And I was there, and I was actually processing my return. When I had this, like, idea of, like, when people would be like, so how is sabbatical? And, like, that zoomed in, like, weird TV show version of that, like, I know, and I'm like, ah, uh, it was medium. You know, I don't know. Because I didn't have a big moment that I was like, God showed up in my hotel room, and it was like, whoa. And, and even what I'm saying here, you think, it's like, oh, that sounds so awesome. God never shows up to me. It's not what you think. We're in a, like, day-to-day relationship. This happens all the time. He's actually in our lives this way, waiting for us to look up and acknowledge him. This is happening. So I don't have a big moment. I didn't have, like, a, I was watching the sunset, and I saw the hand of God reach down and point, and... <laughs> You know, whatever. It was like nothing. All I got was this awesome tan. That's it. That was like the parting gift. Let's keep talking about my tan. It's in faith. We're believing it's just going to show up. But what I did get was a million little moments of God's presence. And that's the miracle. Moments where I was alert to the invitation to bring him what I had. To do the weird thing. To talk to the weird person to obey, to help clean up my mom's house extra because I'm a sweetie. <laughs> like, whatever. And in Proverbs 31, woman, whatever. And uh, <laughs> I'd let you know. Uh, and I was wrestling with the Lord on the beach, and I was like, listen, I don't have anything to tell people. So that's a bummer. Did you do the miracle or did you not? You know, it's okay to end periods of time and go, like, did you do the thing or not? I don't know yet. And I said, you know, like, look, John Mark came back from sabbatical, and he was awesome. He was, like, radiant with the love of God and the Shekinah glory. And I don't think that's happening. Like, you know what I mean? Like, anyway, it's not there. And, and I just heard him say really uh, subtly, like, um, <clears throat> you won't know that the miracle's taken place until you put it against the backdrop of your actual life. So you're going to actually have to step in to the miracle before you even see it. Um, so I did that this week, and he did the miracle. Now, it looks, again, nothing like I suspected. It's a lot harder than I imagined. This deep work I asked him to do, I think he did, but good Lord. I'm like, could you help me a little bit? You know, I'm up at five this morning, like, help, you know? Like, God, did you really do this, even questioning the miracle at some moment? And yet, he took this thing. If I can just think for a second, he took this thing I offered up to him, and he made something really beautiful of it. He tore down false identities about who I am and how people see me and how I have to receive love and how I have to give love and what I'm waiting for and what I'm not waiting for. And he did a million little tiny things beyond what I could have asked him for. And by the way, there's more coming. And, and this is my miracle. And this is who he is. This teaching was not supposed to be my teaching. This keeps happening. I keep getting weird texts when I show up here. I was supposed to be teaching about community because I'm awesome at it. And, um, and um, I'm not. I'm teaching this text. And as soon as I saw that this was my text, I knew that it was for me. The Lord was like, this is just for you. And then also he said it was for you too. So for both of us. Because it's a message, by the way, church, disciples of Jesus, we need to hear over and over again. We don't come once and turn away and just go, I don't know, maybe he won't or whatever. 
We keep coming back, offering the little thing that we have, whether it be practical obedience or a surrender of the calling of God on our life. We come back again and again, and we look to the only one who could provide us with real life and true miracles. And we come in faith like the disciples did. We step out, we start breaking bread, and we trust that he is and will be our provision. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit Bridgetown dot church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.